You're listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Charles Brandon Snyder offers securities through LPL Financial, member FINRA and SIPC. Pursuing Alpha is a separate entity from LPL Financial. Pursuing Alpha and the logo are registered trademarks. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Any guests and their companies are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Alpha Capital Strategies, Alpha Capital, or the Pursuing Alpha Podcast. Hey, Tom. It's good to have you, man. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. you too. It's been uh, a little time in the making to get you to come yeah, in here. Your schedule is insane. I, I kind of feel for you a little bit. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, you know, I, I, I love working. So. And I'm spending a little bit of time now mentoring younger people in the business. And so I love that. So I don't mind t- putting the time in. That's good. The uh, So just quickly, like, introduce yourself, and then we'll jump back in that conversation we just had about you, you look good, so you've had a little bit of a change here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay, I'm Tom Couture, some people say. Other people say Couture. It just depends on... So what's what the real way to say it? The real way is Couture. Is it really Couture? Yeah, like, you know, the company Juicy Couture or, or Randy Couture, the <laughs> MME fighter. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I am a dad of five kids and... Granddad of seven kids, and I'm my career is mortgage banking. I'm currently at the Texas Tech Credit Union, been there since 2011, and I know there's no way you're going to believe this, but this is my 48th year in the mortgage business. That is insane. <laughs> I know I, l- I don't look it right. No, you don't look <laughs> it at all, man. I look older than you do at this you point. You do not. <laughs> but hold on, when you say you're in the mortgage business, it's such an understatement because you were one of the top ten. In the country last year? No, not top 10, top 1%. Top 1%. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you compared the size of deals that you're doing, yeah, I would be way up there. But when they compare the whole country and you've got, you know, California with $900,000 every deal and that's a 1,200 square foot house. Um, but top 1%, top in Lubbock. I'm, yeah. I'm the, I'm the, Highest producing loan officer in Lubbock. But how many deals did you do you normally do then? So uh, this past year, just under four hundred. That is crazy. It was about one hundred and four million. And COVID year, when the market, you know, the rates went way down, I did, and me and one other person helping me did five hundred and seventy nine loans in that year, and we worked from six in the morning till eleven o'clock at night, seven days a week that year. Because we couldn't hire any help, it was COVID. No right, way. you're you're boxed into it. You yeah. just had to. Gr- that is nuts. So, but that was a that year was an anomaly. Uh, uh, Three fifty to four hundred deals a year is pretty normal. But that is not normal. Well, it's normal <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, here's the thing, I love helping people, and I I see giving people a mortgage to buy a home as a way to help them achieve their dream, and so I don't. I don't think transaction. I think people. You're right. right. And that that makes me, I think, a little bit more successful because people want to be cared for. I do. And, and then, you know, I mean, we've known each other for many, many years now mm-hmm. and done a lot of deals together. Personally, I've used yeah. you. And yep. then on top of that is uh, we have a good relationship with some of my clients that mm-hmm. has gone to you. But, and that's been the common denominator with everybody that I, I send your way is like you actually – 
care about the deal. And so it, it's it, it makes from my standpoint when you know I always have to do the fiduciary deal where I send mm -hmm. three people. Yeah, you know, right. Yeah. And we got to do that whole mantra with it. But the the neat part of what I think that you do is it's not a transaction. It is more of a relationship. What they're mm -hmm. trying to accomplish inside yeah. of there, you kind of help them walk through that. So I I do yeah. appreciate that. So yeah. And the other side of that is. When someone like yourself or a realtor sends a deal our way, my way, well, your reputation stands on that too. So you care about the people that are sending them to you as well as the people that you're helping get a mortgage. Yeah, and that, that I would tell you in my profession, I didn't think about this until I was, you know, a couple of years into my career. But then I started figuring out, man, if the, one of the guys that send I send screws this up. The first phone call they're making is going, hey, Brennan, you know, I know you sent me two or three guys, but this is the one we talked about. And, and you know, it didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Right. And so yeah. it makes it I've never had yeah. that happen, but right. I've heard guys getting into trouble well, doing it. Well, and it's easy in the mortgage process to have glitches because there's so many rules and so many nuances to everybody's finances. So. Oh, trust me, I know. Yeah. You, you, yeah. you, you, you. I've done yours. <laughs> but honestly just have to you you expect that sometimes it happens but you just have to handle it right communicate with the person tell them hey this came up i think i can solve it this way are we cool it's the people that ignore the problems that get themselves in trouble right because they end up losing a whole lot yeah. when it comes out to because i mean you got to put money down you got escrow accounts and so the, i mean and if the deal doesn't go through you lose that escrow so yeah let, let i always start like high level kind of getting done and I, I like diving back into like what a mortgage is and how it works and what what the different types and and things to look out for so there there's so many ways that we can take this conversation yeah um but there's a lot that i kind of want to dig into because i've been thinking about this for weeks and weeks and weeks on end and i think a mortgage is one of the most important things that people go out for and there's so many sides to that and i always say if you look at it from two two degrees right differently mm -hmm. it changes your perspective sure. so much yeah, right, right. Because I can tell you, most people, and it, me and you've had this conversation. Well, I'm just going to pay it off, Brandon. I'm going, yeah, yeah. you can just pay it off, right? Yeah. You know, I'm just paying it off. You're in the industry. You can just pay it off, yeah. right? Yeah. But we've also come back and said, hey, carrying debt, sometimes it's not a bad thing right. as long as you do it the right way. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the right and the wrong way a little bit for two seconds and see what that looks like for you. So well, how do people go through a mortgage from just basics and we get on common ground here? Well, now most everything is electronic. And... Um, I would say 80 to 90% of the uh, deals I do, I don't ever meet the person face-to-face -face until I go to their closing. I know. It's changed yeah. a lot. Yeah. It? So the process is you have to do an online application. And I, what happens in my world is I'll get a referral and I'll call that person right away mm -hmm. and have a little short conversation with them, answer any upfront questions they might have, and point them to the online application. They fill it out. I have a, a team that if it's early in the day, by mid-afternoon, they've got it all worked up for me so that I can talk to the people again and say, you're pre-approved or we need to uh, jump these few hurdles. Um, if it's at night, next morning, we get a pre-approval. Pre-approval means that from the front end, before all of the other nuances and documentation and all that is in, from the front end, you can qualify according to the high-level um, uh, rules, mortgage rules. And and so you get a pre-approval, and then you and your realtor can go make an offer on a house with that pre-approval. 
at our place, we go a little bit further at that front end and we ask for that upfront documentation because I don't want to give a pre-approval that I can't stand behind, right? Right. You, you give it kind of a little bit extra to yeah. make sure everything's yeah. there. So then uh, you put an offer on a house and then there is copious amounts of paperwork that have to happen to get that mortgage all the way through to the end. Appraisal has to be ordered, title um, work for the uh, long-term you know, history of the title of the property. Um, we, you put in the application what your income is, what your job history is, what your uh, residence history is. We have to verify all that behind the scenes mm -hmm. by sending forms out to employers. And of course, we've pulled your credit already at the beginning. We can talk about that too. People get worried about pulling their credit. Yeah, if it's a hard time. pull or a soft pull. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and we get appraisal after, I think it's two weeks maybe now, right now, to get an appraisal. And then all of that is compiled. And if I've done my job right, when my team puts it in front of what we call an underwriter, the underwriter is going to look at everything in that package or that file and test it against the rules that uh, of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac for a conventional loan or FHA for an FHA loan. And they're going to come back and say, you did a good job. Uh, I think I might need one more document from you. Um, and we go back and get it. And then the next thing that happens is you get a final uh, disclosure of the numbers that you're going to go. You got an initial one in the beginning showing you all the fees, all the costs, all the down payment, all that. That initial one is then uh, updated at the end because things change during the process. You sure. Know? I mean, we might say at the beginning that we're estimating your house appraisal is going to be 700 bucks, And if the appraiser only charges us 600 we're going to put the new number. You're going to reflect yeah. whatever yeah. the changes right. are. So then you get that uh, that final number three days before your closing date, which is a federal law, and then you go to the title company and you sign 60 docs or so to... Uh, <laughs> it's to, a lot. Yeah, it is. All right, so let's unpack that a little bit because there's a lot there, and there's a lot to go inside of that, right? So mm -hmm. the main things is like I want to look at is that process of what expectations are compared to what reality is. Because mm -hmm. I think expectations on a loan is way different to what reality is. And so in it's I think it's extremely easy if you're a W-2 employee mm -hmm. to get a house loan. Mm -hmm. If you're a business owner, which is mostly my clients, yep. it gets extremely difficult in some most cases or some cases because proven up employment is really difficult. So mm -hmm. I want to... You know, I'm not a CPA, i got to say that, but uh, let's mm -hmm. unpack some tax things here yeah. for a second, right? Well, yeah. So the biggest questions I always come to is, like, most CPAs will take for a business owner will d use depreciation across the board, right? Mm -hmm. Will show extremely low W-2 wages mm -hmm. because they're a Schedule S on yeah. side of their LLC, mm -hmm. and they want wages low because they want to skip self-employment taxes. Yep. And so it makes it all come to passive incomes through the K-1 as draws and dra uh, draws and dividends and things like that, depending on the entity structure. Mm -hmm. So I always say getting into that box early on with guys, it's yeah. got to be a lot easier than it sure. is after the fact. Because I, and, and what's the rule is if you're not in business for two years? Yeah, right. So that, well, that's changed a little bit because all of the data that we collect, whether it's a self-employed person or a W-2 employee, all the data we collect is uploaded to an automated underwriting system, which is Fannie Mae is the big mortgage guru in Washington. Mm -hmm. And they have this, this um, software engine 
that tests every single thing, piece of data that we put into a mortgage application to see if it fits the rules or not. So when it comes to that self-employment... So what's the basic rules? Uh, the basic rules are your usable income... Uh, your, 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 I'm sorry, back that up. Your monthly debt load, not balances, but payments. So it's called Camp debt service coverage ratio in my world, but you usually call it debt to income ratio. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Well, so it's the payments that you're making on your debt equal to how much sal salary or monthly income that you're bringing in. Right, so the, the payments you have on all your debt plus the new house payments. Oh, you add that into it on top of it. Right, and that can't exceed 50% of your gross monthly income if you're W-2 or your bottom line with uh, a self-employed person. So a lot to unpack is right, because on a self-employed guy, that bottom line at the bottom of his tax return, AGI, could be negative. Could be negative. It could be just really small. Any depreciation, equipment depreciation, vehicle depreciation, one seventy nine deduction, whatever you're looking at. Not necessarily one seventy nine. Really, y'all don't even account for one seventy nine accelerated well, depreciation. Please don't say y'all. It's the rules <laughs> from Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, Tom. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, I'm, I'm already burning up, brother. Yeah, it's hot. Uh, yeah, can you yeah, can you open that door? I don't know what it is about this room. It's a light. But that mm. will cool us off real quickly. We might have Harrison screaming in the background, but oh, yeah. it, it's all right. Mm. Uh, but you're, you're right. So the rules will rules, say yeah. that you have to have a debt service coverage ratio, including your mortgage payment, mm. to be 50% in excess of what the debt is. So right. if I... My right. mortgage is a thousand bucks a month. I got to be making at least clearing two thousand a month. Right. Well, mortgage plus your other monthly payments. So if I have a car and a credit card and a house, my new house and student loans, mm -hmm. all those payments added together, they're twenty five hundred dollars, which is facetious, but twenty five hundred dollars. I got to be making at least five thousand dollars a month to to qualify. Do y'all take in account yeah. passive income streams then? If they're on the tax return. Yeah. yeah. So if you have multiple entities, like, like just take me for example, right? Mm -hmm. We have multiple real estate entities. Yep. And so this entity, we might have a conventional mortgage, real estate mortgage on it, you know, mm -hmm. because it's a commercial property. And, you know, we call it debt service coverage ratio. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's generating $120,000 in gross revenue, but 80000 of it's going to a mortgage on it. We're yep. cash flowing $40,000 at mm -hmm. the end of the year, right? Yeah. As long as that 40000 so, shows up on a tax return, I can And it, it carries through, yep. and as it carries through, as passive income inside mm -hmm. of there. Yep. Okay, yep. so that's the biggest, and that's why I wanted to get to that. That's the biggest question I probably have. Mm -hmm. Is there everybody yeah. saying, hey, there's all these different entities. There's Schedule E, right? There's mm -hmm. 1040, yep. right? And and yep. you got farmers. I just dredge them when I'm... Yeah. I love these but, guys together, but that schedule F is detrimental sometimes. Right, but most farmers have a huge depreciation for equipment Correct. that we can add back to their bottom line. Depreciation on equipment or vehicles, I don't care if it's $250,000. I can count that as income. Good. So if their bottom line on the farm is a negative 100000 and they got two fifty in depreciation, they now have $150,000 of income I can count toward their debt service coverage ratio. Yeah, that's that's great. And and most people don't call it debt service coverage ratio. That's more on the CFA yeah. side. It's yeah. debt to income ratio. Debt to income, yeah. Yeah. And Which so is easy if you think about it. Debt payments as a percentage of your gross income. It's got to exceed 50%. Be less than 50%. Or be less yeah. than 50%. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I think that so that's number one rule. That's number one. 
Um, credit scores are a big deal now. Um, I remember the day when you would look at somebody and see, you know, kind of what their debt service ratio or debt to income ratio was and have they made their payments on time? Mm-hmm. If you could approve, approve them. Well, now, that was 2008, though. That's what got us in trouble in 2008, wasn't it? No, we were using credit scores in 2008. That's the catalyst that created it. But the other part is they not only did they start shorting the market, but then they started doing you know what they call mortgage-backed securities or MBSs. And those MBSs, that, well, there's so many like certain amount of securities you can put inside there. So, you know, you... Yeah. I don't understand what this was, you will, but there was something then called swaps, MBS yep. swaps. That's yep. what really... Well, you get into that, and then you start getting into synthetics, and then you started to get into the, all these things where they were betting, like there wasn't enough of these products to go around, mm-hmm. so they started kind of falsifying the, the credit yep. ratings inside them, yep. and that's kind of what tipped it over. Yep. But even on top of that, they, they just started betting on the bet itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was like a 100 to 1 bet. So, you know, hey, I'm going to bet that this mortgage is, you know, this tranche of yep. mortgages isn't going to work. Yep. And so I'm going to go out here and, and, and start magnifying that with derivatives. Mm-hmm. And those derivatives would come in there. And when this fell, you know, there's billions of dollars backing up those derivatives to just start to snowballing. Yeah. And, and there was no way to stop it. There was no point. way to stop it. So yeah. I, I think we learned, and the Dodd-Frank rules came out of this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Chris Dodd and, and Barney Frank. Barney Frank, yeah. Yep. and Which is a Democrat. And like, I, I got to give him pretty a lot of credit there and I don't give Democrats yeah. credit a whole lot, yeah. but that was actually one that I think all of that could have been prevented. Here's the problem that I see. Mm-hmm. And this is just me from outside. So I, and I'm talking, I'm not educated deep enough in this to actually making it a recommendation or anything, but in my opinion, this is all could have been cre- stopped. If you would have separated wealth, the wealth side and the institutional investing mm-hmm. side mm-hmm. from the banking industry. Mm-hmm. And that was done way before yeah. right but as soon as they broke that bridge where bank bank institutions could be play on both sides yeah. of it yep. then there was no checks and balances to no. see if they're betting against their own investments right and as soon as that happens you got problems yeah right and, and right. here you go you got 2008 right. so and now we're in like a funky weird way of that where now we're looking at you know seven trillion dollars roughly that was poured onto the u.s economy in 2020 during covid yeah yeah we were talking about this before we went online the m1 uh, money supply yep. reports is skyrocketed ron do you have that graph i think you have that graph and so I, that is insane yeah. so yep. we were at four trillion dollars yep. and then it went up on january 22 I mean, it exceeded twenty-one trillion. I mean, we went for from less than four trillion. Well, look at it. Just from January to not even July, January to like March of twenty twenty, it went from four up to sixteen. That that yeah. Quadrupled. If you're just talking, you're quadrupled just in that in short that period one, of time. Yeah, but if which you is all the stimulus. It's all the stimulus. Yeah, right. we just we printed money and printed money and printed money and handed it out and handed it out, and people started living off of that money. Instead of saving it, mm-hmm. which the I, and this is like you can't shut down the economy, especially yeah. in some of these states, the way that they did and didn't expect that. But then you, you created the first. And everybody talks about this where it's, uh, it's, uh, what are they calling it now? It's uh, it's guaranteed income. It's uh, Ryan. Oh, they're big on this. Um, and this was the first taste where where everybody gets a guaranteed income. Oh, and so it's uh, they call it. Uh, not guaranteed income 
Yeah, it's UBI. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It's not QBI, but UBI, Universal Basic Income, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think this was the best trial run. It's a horrible trial run, but we actually literally tried this where everybody got a unified basic income. Mm -hmm. And they did it through the stimulus package to test this thing out. And what did they figure out? People are lazy. Yeah. And they're not going to do anything with their lives. And right. now you can't get them to go back to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even today, in 2023, you're having these major companies fighting everybody going, hey, I don't want to go back to the office. Mm -hmm. I just want to work from home. And yeah. I want to work six hours a week, four yeah. hours a week. And yeah. I, I'm blessed because the guys that work with me and for me and around me, all want to do this because they have a passion for it. So I never have to question that. But I look at some of these other companies that I talk to and going, and I can't get anybody that wants to work. Mm -hmm. And I think it changed the culture. Some of it's yeah. for the good, but a lot of it for the bad. Yeah. And uh, it's crazy. Do so, you, have you seen the UBI? Have you looked into that? Have you? I, I know what it is, but I haven't really studied it that much. But I, I wasn't in it, it an experiment in socialism. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. it's literally going back to that yeah. motto. Mm -hmm. It never works out for any country that actually does it. No. And you look at everybody right now, and they're like, it's changed the mentality of people to, right. hey, right. get up and go and work. And I, I think the good Lord makes us where today's, you know, you, if you go to work and you, and you do good things, but mm -hmm. you try to make today better than yesterday and tomorrow better than today, yeah. but you got to have that get up and go to work kind of mentality. Yeah. And that's the part where I just kind of get off on it. I know. I, I think that especially young people have never had to or have never really experienced anything else. You take a 25-year-old right now, you know, and two years ago, three years ago, coming up, they started getting free money handed to them. Well, why not? You know, that that was their attitude. Yeah, why not? Did go down that bill, and we're we're looking at this on paying for college too, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, and that that's been a huge narrative there, and uh, yeah, and it's just like a mortgage to me. You know, uh, you're not going to figure out and and fix the college system mm -mm. and debt trying to put a band-aid on it and when you try to pay off these debt mm -hmm. that doesn't fix anything you're, no. all you're doing is paying off the debt and you're going to have that debt resurface four yeah. years from now yeah right they're right. They're, they're typically state-run organizations mm -hmm. you want to fix it cut out the bloat that's inside these universities exactly i mean right. you go look at the inflation on the university cost from 1980 to yeah. you know it's up like 400 percent. i don't know what that figure is ron but i think it's it, it's 10 times worse than inflation. Well, so it doesn't make sense. And yeah. if you go look at the universities, it's insane. Well, could you run your business bloated like that and, and actually make money, or would you be out of business? You yeah, know? I'd be out of business, right? Because the government's not going to prop you up, but mm -mm. they sort of have to prop up the, the um, education system. And they don't really. like. I think there ought to be whatever your endowment is, and this is where I, I'm, yeah. I'm deeply against it. Whatever your endowment is sh should offset what the government in deals. Mm -hmm. So you can't go to these huge institutions that have you know hundreds of billions of dollars inside of an endowment and still get government subsidies yeah. because you're state-run school, mm -hmm. but you have all this free money that's coming into your endowment that's not taxed. Yeah, yeah there, There's so many things, and I— I'm a conservative when it comes to a lot of these things, but it just the, it does not make sense yeah. anymore. So, well, don't you th think the tax code needs to be changed? There's no way to fix it. No, a flat tax won't fix it. There's no way to fix it. The only thing that you can, and here's why it won't ever be fixed, is the where are the smartest people in the world work? Where mm -hmm. for themselves <laughs> in finance? Oh, in finance, yeah. 
the smartest people in the world because of the money is in finance, mm-hmm. right? The smartest people in the world are not government politicians. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I think we've proven that over yeah, exactly. <laughs> last couple of years, right? Yeah. Right. And so it's it's if you don't have the smartest people that can actually go in there and, and figure it out, they're never they're always not going to think comprehensive enough yeah. to the smartest people to find the loopholes in it. Mm-hmm. And they're not gonna come in there and create a flat tax. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just not gonna work. And even if you did, they're gonna find a way around it because somebody's gonna get their palm greased and they're mm-hmm. gonna there's gonna be a benefit one way or the other. So yeah. I just um, I think the tax code does need to be reformed. It's just never gonna be reformed <sighs> in the way that we are actually thought about. Yeah. Hey, swing it back. I know that was kind of a Yeah, we got off. We got <laughs> off and I love doing that too. But <laughs> it's a good get off though, because I think understanding what went wrong, do you think that's gonna happen again? No, I do think that Dodd Frank, back to what you said, I think it put some safeguards in there. Now we're there's still the crossover between the banks and the investment firms, but when it comes to lending, we have probably, well, I shouldn't say probably, we have the highest quality um, portfolio of mortgage loans nationwide that than we've had in the last 25 years because all of those guidelines were brought back in. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to, you can get a mortgage with 5% down or a fa- uh, FHA mortgage with 3.5% down, so it's not like, Back in the 70s or 60s where you had to have 20% down payment. So but unpack that really quick, right? Because there is a benefit to going one way or the other. Sure, yeah. So well, the 3 5%, you can get a loan. And what type of loan is that? That's an FHA loan. And an FHA loan stands for what? A federal Housing Authority. And um, originally, it was to help people that could not buy a home or had never bought a home any other way. Um, back in, I think it was 1938, um, what was that dude's name? Roosevelt, <laughs> that president. He started it and uh, because at the time, banks were lending money to buy homes and they required people to put 20% down and your average young person getting married couldn't come up with 20% down until a lot of years into their marriage. Mm-hmm. So the FHA came along and, and said, we can help people get in homes by letting them have a lower down payment. And the there's an insurance fund set up by the government. That's where I was fixing to go. Yeah, called the FHA insurance fund. So in an FHA loan, you're charged a fee up front of 1.75% of your loan amount that's added to your loan. You don't have to pay that in cash. But Is it a one-time fee or recurring? That part's a one-time fee. But then there's a recurring fee as well. PMI, ad- right? Yeah, and in FHA world, they have to do everything different. So it's MP- MIP, Mortgage Insurance Premium. Okay, so that hey, how much is that typically? That has been 0.85 percent of your loan amount divided by 12 added to your payment, right? But it's recurring every year, right? Yes. Until you hit the 20 percent mark. Not on FHA. On FHA, oh, it's wow. there for the life of the loan. I did not know that. And it just recently got lowered to 0.55 from 0.85, so it's a little more affordable. Because back to what I was saying. The portfolio of mortgages that's out there being paid for now is so much more quality, uh, credit quality, uh, higher credit quality, that there hasn't been near the foreclosures. You look on CNBC or uh, Fox Business or whatever, and they're going to say, oh, my God, the foreclosure rate has gone up. You know, it's like, well, this is what's wrong with 24-hour news cycles. Sorry, I'm going to get in trouble here. No, um, I but, think you're um, right. they got to make everything a, a catastrophic event right, or they, they wouldn't have anything to report. And they wouldn't have ratings enough right. to get advertisers. But 
They're compare. They're saying foreclosure rates are really high right now compared to last what? year, yeah, year before. Guess what? There was all that stimulus, and there was a moratorium on foreclosures <laughs> during COVID. I totally forgot about you that. You could not foreclose a house, so of course, three foreclosures is three times three hundred percent higher than two years ago because you couldn't have any foreclosures then. So, back to the point, though, the FHA insurance fund then has a lot of. Um, uh, excess money in it right now because they haven't had to. What happens in a foreclosure of an FHA loan or a conventional loan that has PMI, which is a privately held insurance? What's PMI stand for? So people private mortgage insurance. Okay, so all right. and either one of those insures the lender against you defaulting on the loan. Okay, you pay for it. Right, great deal for you. Yeah, no right. kidding. You pay for the own insurance. Make sure you don't default. Yeah, and if you're a person who's never defaulted, it's a big waste of money. Yep. Um, but on either case, if you did default and I had to go foreclose your loan, if I lost money as a bank or a mortgage company, some portion of that loss is paid back to me from those insurance policies. How much of that? Well, it's different on every situation. Give me an average. Give me a range. 22% of the okay. loss. Yeah. It's paid back? Yeah. So, so I love it. So they put insurance that we have to pay for just to cover the, the institutions that are making money off right, of us. Right, right. Which there's a positive side to that coin, that, though, because people whose maybe credit quality isn't quite as high. So what's a good or bad credit credit quality to uh, get a one in your world? So well, we could define that real quick. Well, if you're talking about credit score. No, I'm just saying, like, what's it going to take for me to qualify for a mortgage minimum? What's my credit score have to be? Uh, oh, um, Minimum mm -hmm. in my world six hundred. Um, okay. Some companies on an FHA loan can go down to five sixty. Uh, we don't because th they're really hard to to get approved. But so what's the range in the credit scoring? So if you're at five sixty to six hundred, where you're at, what's the lowest your credit score can go? Uh, the lowest credit score you can get? Yeah. In the four hundreds. Yeah, it's around four hundred. I yeah. thought right. Yeah. And the highest? Eight. Well, the highest possible is about eight thirty five. Okay, but they never give anybody an eight thirty five. So the highest I see is maybe eight ten, eight nineteen. Right. Um, that's a stellar person who's never made a uh, late payment. They uh, don't overutilize their revolving credit, and that's a big one, by the way. That's a huge one, because your credit score is highly affected by how much of your revolving credit limit you use. So think and you want to stay below what thirty percent. That's the, I think this is the key people need to recognize. <coughs> yeah. So, so if you have $10,000 in a credit line, you should never spend more than $3,000 of that every single month and you got to pay it off every month. Yeah. Yeah. If you go up over 3% or 3,000 or 3,300, 30% and you stay higher than that, they're going to ding your credit score. The, the algorithms will say they're living off the credit and we got, we got to lower their score. Even though that it's paid off, Th this is what's insane to me. Mm -hmm. Even though that, like, I go up over, I go 50%, mm -hmm. right? Yep. But I pay it off and I never, ever go mm -hmm. every single month, right? Because right. we run a business off of there's, we'll have to do a podcast on this on yeah. when to effectively use a credit card yep. and what the benefits are because it's just a big game. It is a game. It, right? Because yeah. you can get all these benefits by using a credit card, but people are afraid to have credit cards because they hear all the horror stories because mm -hmm. if you're responsible with it, you pay it off and you just use it as a revolving line that you pay off every single month, you can get a percentage of that money that you put on that line back. <laughs>
The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. I have an American Airlines credit card. Yeah. I don't keep a balance on it, um, but I use it to pay everything except my mortgage because mortgage companies won't let you pay with a credit card sure. in case it gets denied. Decline. Yeah. yeah. Um, so during the month when the bills are adding up and the credit card balance goes up, my score goes down on payday. When I pay it off, my score goes back up and it can fluctuate 20 or 30 points. It does. It's crazy. Yeah. It, it's good. Yeah. But that's just because the, the, and the same thing with trading, you, you can verify this. Um, it's because the algorithms can't dig down in deeper than the top line of things. So if your balance is more than thirty percent, that algorithm says, "Oh, that guy's a risk. He's got a he's got a low have a lower score." And I think this is where AI and some other things are going to come in and step in. And so I think they're going to go, "Oh, this guy takes it to here, and then pays it off, and then takes it to here, and they're going to start seeing those yep. patterns." Yep. And I think that's going to change help. over time. Yeah. And, and uh, let's see if that happens, because I think it really does, because it really does hurt the business owner, mm-hmm. um, because that's like we have so many credit cards. I think we're up to like four. Mm-hmm. Right. And everyone has a different purpose. Yeah. And so I have like a, a Costco card. Right. Mm-hmm. And we put things on there just to on personal for trips and things that are more efficient that you get. And then I have a two percent back card and then I have a company card mm-hmm. that we get like two percent back on. And. At the end of the year, we end up taking, we have an annual planning trip that we take the whole team on. Mm. Well, we just use the points off of there to take the annual tra- yeah. planning trip, yeah, right? right? And right, so right. it's it's one of those things. If it's yep. used right, it's really good. Mm-hmm. But I think most people don't understand that right. it impacts you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they see it as like, hey, that's future money that I'm going to use today, and I'll figure out how to pay it off. Mm-hmm. But most credit card companies make 15 to 30%. Plus transaction fees. Plus transaction fees. Now, now the transaction fees are on the consumer side. Yeah, I mean on the on the uh, on company the, sides. On the vendor. On the, the vendor re- side. The retail. The retail. You're from yeah, or right. Right. Yeah. So they pay between one and a half and four mm-hmm. percent just to process that transaction. And mm-hmm. so, and I think this is where some of the uh, cryptocurrencies are really stepping in. I, I can't get into that that narrative, right? Yeah, because that's right. one of the limitations of having this uh, podcast and being registered. Yeah. But some of the the middleman, I think, is what's going to be taken out in the future because of that, because the, the processing fees and the transaction fees are so high that that adds up to being billions well, yeah. and trillions of dollars. Well, yeah, because like a, a credit card company doesn't make a penny off of me on interest because I pay it off before any interest accrues, but Th- they make a lot on every transaction from that vendor. Yeah, they, they make 4 or 5% on yeah, there, and now right. they pay me 2% back because I won't, I won't even touch a credit card unless I get 2% back. <laughs> so I'm like, that's, that's kind of my standard. Is it 2%? Nope. All right. And yeah. so I always looking for the ones that are paying me four or five or six percent on hey you know put six thousand dollars in gas and get six percent back right Mm -hmm. all right cool so we set a limit to six grand until we hit that limit then we switch it over right Mm -hmm. so you can game the system because that's what they're doing for you right game the system to get the maximum amount why not Mm -hmm. they're giving it to you and and it's they're going to make you know trillions of dollars on on the transfer of wealth you might as well just get a piece of that if you do it the right way. Yeah, so, right, right. So how does that affect you? So you, we, we went into 
All right, so one is the 20% down. So I always look at it and have a conversation that PMI is a cost. It's a recurring cost until you hit 20%. I didn't know FHA loans that it never comes off. Right. But it's a good starter. So does that mean people with an FHA loan, should they refinance? Yeah, if rates on the conventional loan later on are low enough for them to benefit from a refinance. But you have to – so what the way I look at it is if, if your FHA loan rate is five and a quarter mm-hmm. and the – PM or the MIP portion is 0.55, so now you're at what 5.7? Yeah, or 5.7, right? whatever. Yeah, it's five and a quarter and plus five, five and a half is 5.75. 5.8, 5. yeah. Yeah, 5.8. Um, well, you're not going to want to refi unless that to out of the FHA unless that conventional rate without PMI is going to be less than 5.8. So don't just look at rate. You look at rate plus PMI because you're trying to get rid of that PMI, right? Right. So if but you got to have twenty percent uh, equity in your home to in order, or is it twenty five percent equity? Twenty. I, if you refi to a conventional loan, your equity has to be at least twenty percent, or else you're not going to get that PMI. But rate. is that equity on the original price you bought it at? No, the new because appraisal. you go to a new appraisal when you refinance, yep. so they're actually going to give you yeah. value today's, value. today's yeah. value, right? Yeah. So if I have a house for three years and it appreciates at three or four percent, and I got twelve percent of equity just in, mm-hmm. hypothetically yep. just inside of my home, and yep. then I paid that mortgage down, right. I could have fifteen percent equity after three Plus, years. Originally, you had. Somewhere between a three and a half and ten percent uh, down payment, so you already had that equity. So too. you could have twenty percent inside yeah, of it real quickly. Exactly, and then you look at refinancing. There's a cost to refinance, about three grand or so. Um, but if you're going to lower your rate enough so that, I, what I like to tell people is, no sweat if you're going to um, your lower payment is going to pay back the investment of the three grand in a year or less. Do it if it's Two years, yeah, let's look at it and see. And if it's going to take you five years to pay back that $3,000, you may not live in that house for five more years. So don't refinance. Man, that's a good subject right there. Put the put the, the fees to refinance onto the principal and save a little of interest on your current loan. It's And so every time somebody comes in to talk about refinance, we compare those numbers. Because I am not going to refinance somebody just because Oh, a five-handle rate sounds better than a six-handle rate, right? I'm right. going to look at the numbers and say, this is not a wise financial decision. So you act almost like a, a planner to a certain sense. You for actually the, do a comparison. For oh, the absolutely. mortgage, you compare everything to it. You write it down. It's black and white. This is yep. how it saves you. Done. Yep. You said something right there is how, and you probably know this, how long do people actually stay in their homes now? Average is about seven years. Really? Yeah, so some people are longer, some people a year. But the average in the United States is about seven years, which is why you can watch interest rates and on 30-year mortgage loans and um, compare it to the 10-year treasury because their close number, uh, the 10-year treasury is going to expire or um, what's the word, not expire, but uh, mature mm. in 10 years. And if, if your mortgage is going to pay off in somewhere between seven and 10 years, that's why those rates kind of track each other there. Yeah, they're not the same, like right no, now. No, but they're correlated. So you can actually about, see. Historically, by about a spread of two points, 200 basis points, 250 basis points. So if you see a 10, historically, you see a 10 year treasury at 3%, mortgage rates are going to be somewhere between five and five and a half. Mm. Right now, it's been a little wider because of all the, I'll say it nicely, all the 
stuff that happened um, <laughs> over the last couple of years. That wasn't nicely. That was very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. So it's a little bit wider spread right now, but it's coming back. And I mean, we could talk about rates for two hours, but the bottom line is, and I really wanted to get to this, unless you have something No, else. go, go. So many people think that when the Fed raises the rates, that automatically <laughs> means mortgage rates are going to go up, and it does not. Yeah, so the f they don't understand, and this is a good thing where I can jump in and kind of give you, because we study this every single day. So the Fed only controls the Fed fund rate, mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's like they, they control that when they issue that rate, and then the market controls everything after that. Well, no, not exactly. Because the Fed funds rate is defined as the interest rate that a Fed member bank is allowed to charge a non-Fed member bank correct, to right. borrow money overnight. So think about this. If I'm Tom's little bank yep. and you're Brandon's big bank and you belong to the Fed and I don't, just to break this down to where people can understand. No, it, I love you it. You belong to the Fed and I don't. So I loan out 20 car loans today because for some reason everybody's buying cars. I don't have enough cash in my vault to cover all that. So I have to go to Brandon and say, Brandon, I've got to borrow some money overnight until I can rearrange all my balance sheet stuff and whatnot. Pay everything off, get everything yeah. squirted. Right. right. So your your bank loans my bank, whatever, $100,000 to cover what I didn't have. Your bank is only allowed to charge me the Fed funds rate at my bank. But if the Fed funds rate that I'm paying you overnight, because I'm that guy, that bank that has to borrow all the time because I do a lot of business and I don't have enough deposits to cover the money I'm loaning out. And so I'm borrowing all the time. A year ago, or a little over a year ago, you were only getting to charge me a quarter to a half a percent on the money I borrowed from you. Today you're getting to charge me four and a quarter percent or four and a half percent, right? Right, because that's so, the Fed rate. Right, so... What, but, but, but how's that going to affect the consumer? When, when I'm having to pay you to borrow that money overnight, i got to raise the rate on my car loans, mm -hmm. on my personal loans that I'm giving to the consumers out there. So that Fed funds rate can affect um, commercial loans, credit card loans, car loans, personal loans, any of those kind of consumer-type loans and commercial loans that a bank loans out because they have to raise their rate to cover what they're they're borrowing from the Fed. Right, right. right. So then what you said comes into play right after. Yeah, so the the, here, here's the other side of that coin. This is the point I'm getting at. So the Fed fund right here, but the market controls anything after that. Right. So in my world, you got the twos, the tens, right, the twenties, mm -hmm. right? And so those are durations of time. Mm -hmm. So as a consumer, right, if I'm going to borrow or loan you money for 20 years, mm -hmm. I want a higher interest rate than if I'm going to loan you money at two years. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. And, and, and that's a grid, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so typically yeah. that yield interest curve. yield curve <laughs> is where we're getting to. <laughs> Thank you, right? Yeah. And so that yield curve naturally will be higher. So my 30-year mortgage yep. is going to be at a higher rate than mo what my two-year. Because when you loan that to me, you're tying that money up for too long of a time. It's opportunity cost right, right. is what we call it. So yep. the opportunity cost for me to go make money somewhere else for the next 30 years gone. is gone, yep. right? So I want a higher interest off of that money. Mm -hmm. Well, that that's where the market controls that. Exactly. Here's where we're at today in a recession. Yeah. So 90, I don't know what the stat is, but 
80, 90% of the time that that yield curve inverts, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm getting a higher interest rate on, on things that are very time. short <clears throat> yep. rates than I am on my 30 rates. Mm -hmm. It's automatic recession. Yeah, exactly. And we've done that, you know, Last year, yep. we, we were inverting the yield curve, right? right? Our two and tens inverted, and now everything's inverted. Yep. And so you don't really come out of that because what's happening is the Fed is increasing rates mm -hmm. faster than the, what the market in the street is actually increasing their rates. Exactly. And so, like you said, a half a percent rate went to four and a quarter, mm -hmm. right? That's a huge jump yeah. when all of the long-term debt was already at three or four. Mm -hmm. So now those things are inverted. Mm -hmm. Right. And now we're in a whole lot of trouble here. But this is what scares the piss out of me. I had a deep conversation with uh, we, we have a chief economist here, mm -hmm. Dr. Starr, Brian. He's going to be on. Brian, we got to get him on quick. Mm -hmm. And I literally said, Brian, what are we going to do? So you said a last year, and this is a good point, that the Fed fund rate was a quarter or half a percent. Mm -hmm. A year ago. The United States is $52 trillion in debt. Mm -hmm. And that we're paying a half or a 1% in interest rates on that alone. Yeah. Now they're fixing to pay 4%. Mm -hmm. So we were paying $350 million, or excuse me, $350 billion in interest only loans last year. Mm -hmm. yep. We're fixing to pay $1.2 trillion. Mm -hmm. That is insane. Yeah. So. I'm not saying the market's going to crash and the world's going to end and all this other stuff because oh. not only the United States is in a deficit, but this yeah. is what but Dr. Global. Starr explained. It's global. Every country is in a deficit, yeah. right? So, so we're, we're printing yeah. money. We're devaluing our currency on yeah. a global level mm -hmm. that is unprecedented in history. Yep. And I think this is going to be a big, big problem. But this is why I also think that hard assets is one of the best things that you can buy and you can own. Yep. And and I know this is probably in outside your wheelhouse, but I'm going to ask you. Discount rates on debt is something a lot of people don't even understand. Yeah, right. right. So if I take a loan out and I borrow money, right, half a million dollars for a loan, mm -hmm. and then I go 20 years, well, the value of that half a million dollar loan is now worth less because our dollar's worth less. Right, exactly. Right. And so when you start applying discount rates to currencies, this is why I think people make a deep mistake in not carrying debt. Mm, yeah. And I carry debt or I, I don't recommend anything, but I look and have a conversation with a lot of our planning clients on carrying debt because you want to carry debt because that debt actually devalues over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Because in inflation, a half a million dollar loan today seems like a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. Half a million dollar loan 20 years from now, when inflation's at 4%, mm -hmm. is not that much money. Yeah, right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect it's sense. It's a completely yep. different world. Mm -hmm. But I view debt as if if I have an asset that mm -hmm. has a high probability of making me 4 to 6 or 8%. Yeah, offsetting that debt. Offsetting yep. that debt is yep. what's the important part. Mm -hmm. So if I have a half a yep. million dollars in a brokerage account that makes me 10% return, hypothetically, mm -hmm. and I turn around and use the gains off of that 10% to pay my debt off, yeah. and then if a bank pisses me off, yeah. I got a half a million dollars, I can just write them a check and mm -hmm. say, you're done. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? Yeah, right. So you're yeah. actually in control of the bank. That's the bank's not money. in control of you. That's mm -hmm. smart money. Mm -hmm. That's really yeah. where the wealthy goes into. Yeah. But we're getting off. I, I love that conversation because I actually mm -hmm. think nobody understands how money is yeah, right. circulated in yep. the industry. So if 
my question on this is, do you believe that we should stop? Like, when interest rates go up this high, should we stop buying houses? No, absolutely not. So 100% disagree. Why? Because the appreciating value of that real estate is rates are going to come down at some point. Because that, that, that is the way the world works or the economic world works. We have to weather this storm. So right now, you know, if even an investment property, which is a higher rate than if you're going to live in the house, that two things are going to happen. If you wait till next year or the year after, some people waiting in hopes that then they'll get a 5% rate instead of a six and three quarters. And other people waiting because they're afraid and they want their money somewhere, you know, safe, like in your pillow, <laughs> which isn't a safe place to put your money, by the way. Because now with the 6% inflation, yeah. Yeah, right, the dollars <laughs> are being devalued. But um, I don't believe <coughs> you should stop buying appreciating assets because you going to miss out on that appreciation if you wait. COVID and was a great example of that, wasn't it? Yes. What's exactly. home value is from 2020 to 2022? What, yeah. up 20%, 30%? Yeah, overall, and yeah. Especially in Lubbock. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And a lot of people think that that means it's going to crash, but it's not. It no, because the dollar devalued. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's where I was going. <laughs> but, um, but so you miss out on all that uh, appreciation if you don't own that asset until two years from now, that house, that whatever commercial building um and so what if for two years you're paying a point and a quarter higher than you wanted to just refinance it when rates come down and, and make your money work smarter i think there's two things you need to consider right i don't care where the interest rates are you have to divide your assets of what you're buying into is, is either passion or it's return mm -hmm. yeah so if you're buying, going to buy a house that you're going to live in and it's your forever home mm -hmm. or it's your forever home now mm -hmm. right yep. and you buy it responsibly it's a good buy mm -hmm. yep right and that's that's really when i mean buy it responsibly you know i always say 25 30 percent mm -hmm. I, I don't know what the rules are but i always tell people don't buy over 25 percent of what your income is mm -hmm. yeah I, I don't know what the technical rules y'all no. use but well, well we don't really have that kind of a technical rule but go on yeah the, the, the 25 percent is a good thing yeah you know, spend 25% on your home. A lot of people say it's 30 or 40, but 25% yeah. is where I'm kind of at. Don't exceed that, right? So that's the first metric. Two is, is if it's an investment. Mm -hmm. And so if the investment is, is do you, is there, you make all your money on investment, yeah. real estate property on the front yeah. end of the transaction, not on the back end. Yeah. Everybody thinks they make money on the back end when they sell it. No, you make money on the front end when you're buying a good asset yeah. at a fair value or a below fair value. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Knowing that it's an appreciating value yeah, in the exactly. long run. So you can always refinance it if you have good equity in it and right. it's a good asset. Right. And it's not just knowing that that investment property is refinancing, but somebody else is paying for it. Because you're renting it to them. So let's unpack that for a second. So how does that work, right? So I got one question for you because I get this question probably 50 times a year. More than that. How many homes can you own as investments before you have to go to conventional? And what is the difference between conventional financing and government if it's Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac 30-year fix financing because this is important. So you, the, what you're really asking is the difference between bank financing and, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because conventional, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac call their loans conventional. Okay, right? so, so 
So going to a bank and getting a loan at a bank to buy an investment property versus doing it through the regular long-term mortgage rules. A couple things. One, a bank's not going to give you a 30-year loan on to buy that investment property. They typically give you a... 15 to 20. Correct. Yeah. Right. That, that's where I'm at. Right. 20-year loan. Yeah. And then they reprice that loan right. every right. three to five years. Yeah. They give you an adjustable rate uh, and it's fixed for that three to five year and then... They reevaluate it based on the current market. So if interest rates go up, you're going to get a higher interest rate. But yes. if they go down, you might get a lower one. I know, too. but there's risk there. Right. It's not guaranteed, no. right? And no. so the the other scenario is a, uh, a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac, which is a conventional Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loan. You can't do a FHA loan on an investment property. It has to be your primary residence, period. Okay. That's a hard rule. But on a conventional F Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan, you can own up to 10 financed properties. Or nine plus your primary resident. Right. Yeah. I was going to say your primary is included in the 10. Okay. Um, if you, uh, if, if your credit score is 720 or below, then you can only own seven. Oh, if I didn't know that. If your credit score is 721 or above, you can own 10. Um, so how do you, how do you do that? You're going to have to put at least 20% down. On so you get out of PMI part. right there. Yep. And you're going to get a better interest rate if you put 25%, just because it's a little less risky to the lender if you happen to default. Um, and your interest rate is going to be a bit higher. My way of thinking is who cares? Because the way rents have gone up, you're going to be able to uh, debt service that loan through the rent. And if you keep that house... For the whole 30-year term, now you've got an asset that's appreciated 3% a year. So 3 times 30 is whatever, 90%. Yep. Um, well, it's compounding, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, more than 90%. Um, and someone else paid all the debt on that loan. Yeah, that's what I, – and I think – so you got three things working for you, right? So somebody else is paying the debt, mm -hmm. right? You're getting to borrow an asset at 75 to 80% of its value, mm -hmm. okay? Yep. Yep. Then you get to depreciate that asset out. Mm -hmm. So and, you're and not paying taxes on the asset, right. and then you're generating income off it. Right, and that, you have the appreciation over time when you I, decide to get out of it. That's four. I'm yeah. sorry. There's four really yeah. good reasons, and I'm, I'm not promoting real estate, guys. I'm, yeah. I can't do that, but I'm saying this is why our society is built on real estate. Mm -hmm. This is why the you, you asked earlier why the IRS will not change these rules mm -hmm. because you know there's things like 1031s which we're not even going to get into. There's yeah. things like cost segregation of real estate that we're not going to yeah. get into, but there's things that there's huge advantages inside of real estate that no other uh, no other asset class ever even gets to come close to mm -hmm. controlling or having a piece of. So you can there's so many advantages into those if they're done right. But it really comes down to you and the mortgage side of it is if you do it right, you finance it right right you get the right rent rates yeah. or it's your forever home so you got to really have that deal that says yep. don't overspend right. live modest and uh, i lived in my first house that we bought for 15 years mm. and i was pretty successful in yeah. what i do today and i still live there yeah but my mindset was i mean i was paying less than i was paying like eight hundred thousand dollars mm. i mean eight i mean excuse me eighty eight hundred dollars on the house yeah on a house that I bought for $80,000. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so w this is 15 years ago. Yeah. And we ended up selling that house for almost 170. Yeah. More and than so double. we yeah, more than double. Mm -hmm. But it gave me that time to stockpile so much capital yep. 
that I didn't have this huge, and I think that's where a lot of people overbuy their primary residence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. right. And look at look at Warren Buffett. Still in the ranch style house that he bought, however long ago. It's nuts. Probably fifty years ago now or more. Yeah, and, and he's the wealthiest guy, one of the wealthiest guys on the planet. So yeah, there's something to learning to live below honestly. your means and and, yeah. and and enjoy what he is. I'm, I worked with a guy. He was worth probably three hundred million, and one of the wealthiest guys in West Texas, and he built a. It was one of the largest homes, not only in Texas, but I'm talking going all the way back to California and all the way to coast to coast. I mean, it's a massive home. And it took him four years to build it. I think it was like 25, 30,000 square feet. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And, and, and pretty, pretty cool dude. And I was like, after doing it, and he was telling me about his mantle, and it was just this, I mean, massive thing, and it's just gorgeous. And I go, after doing that, he goes, Brennan, I, I got to tell you, man, like after living in it for a year or two, I was like, you don't even see it anymore. Yeah, right. It just becomes a thing that you walk past. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people just kind of get off on saying, I, I got to keep up the Joneses yeah. and making sure all that stuff happens. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I, I, you, you can live in that. And uh, that's why I never really valued. I valued assets. And we could, we could get into some really philosophical stuff on that, but. Bottom line is, happiness doesn't come from those things. From material things. You can things. enjoy them, and that's great. But if you're not already happy in here, the, the luster fades. And you're going to want things. something bigger and better. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's like like my car. Everybody everybody in town knows I have a, a, an Audi, you know. and they're That's all, faster. Uh, <laughs> but yours can't go 200 miles without having to run out of battery. <laughs> it goes 220. Okay. Unless there's a hill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah. like, that car doesn't make you happy, and that car doesn't make me happy. I'm already happy. I'm already, I love my life. And I get to enjoy that car. But if I had to sell it and drive a Nissan Sentra or whatever, yeah, you're good with who it. Who cares? I, I look at things like a car, and the reason I bought it is that autopilot. I want to buy back my time. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's mine, the only thing. Mine can't do that. Yeah, that's the <laughs> only thing I can do is buy back time because there's so many times i got to be on the phone call mm -hmm. or i got to send a text or something like that, and I'm paying attention to the road, but yeah. everybody does this and tries to text mm -hmm. while they're driving, right? And it's so dangerous, mm -hmm. and I never promote that. They're like, don't do it, right? Yeah. But when you can hit the autopilot button and it's five o'clock in the morning and I'm going 100 miles an hour down the straightest road in the world from yeah. Lubbock to Amarillo yeah. and there's nobody on the road, it's nice to hit the autopilot for a second mm -hmm. and send a 10 second text mm -hmm. and know that I can still focus on the road, but I don't have to have my hands on the road for 10 seconds. Yeah. Or this is yeah. the most annoying thing is open up a Coke oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and do you're you doing it with yeah. your knee and you're doing it. Yeah, right. So anyways, yeah. I digress. All mm -hmm. right. So we talked about all the things inside of finance. Right in inside of how you get a mortgage, the one thing we hadn't talked about is really the pitfalls of it. Like, where can it go wrong? Well, you said it a few minutes ago. The biggest where you can go wrong is when you overbuy for what you can afford. I you think know? that's right. I think that's probably the biggest one. And the next biggest one is location, location, location. If you're going to buy real estate, you got to buy it smart. You got to buy it where. It's going like in this town, being a college town. I mean, there's a few areas where you wouldn't want to do it, but most places you can buy a rent house uh, um, and never have to worry about whether or not you're going to keep it full. Mm -hmm. And of course, 
I would say another thing, not get struck by lightning, but people buying houses to Airbnb, the ma- market's super saturated in love of, uh, for Airbnb. So um, there's going to come a time where those are not going to be as profitable. Don't, don't you think the regulations are not to come down on those? Yeah, probably. So yeah. I think it's already started in a lot yeah. of markets, but I, I but think it's going to get worse. But So I'd say pitfalls are definitely overbuying for what you can afford and location and quality. You know, don't don't buy a house that is already falling apart and you don't have the means to, you know, fix it back up and try to think that's going to make you a ton of money over the next 30 years. Okay, so touch on that for a little bit because I think that's interesting. There, there are some different ways where you can finance real estate so mm-hmm. so you can finance real estate on and i got a good casey klingensmith's a good buddy of mine yeah and so mine too yeah right i'm yeah. sure and casey's awesome but he was like hey brandon you can go get financing where you can actually finance the remodel itself yeah. and then you can get the loan off of it's tva or no, it's, it's arv arv thank as you as repaired value as repaired value yep. so that that's yep. that's that's going to be a bank loan not a one of these government backed fannie mae freddie mac loans Mm-hmm. So here in town, there's a few banks that'll do that. Um, credit Union too. We are not big enough to be able to do that, which doesn't matter. But, um, but yeah. So you can get an appraisal based on the plans you have for remodeling or adding to or whatever you're going to do to that house, flipping it. Most people say, um, and they'll loan you the money to purchase it, and probably except for maybe ten percent, um, the money, money to remodel it. Yeah. Yeah, and then you do the work, and then that loan, usually that is going to be on their books, one of those adjustable rate kind of loans or interest-only loans, and when you're done the remodel, they're going to want it put into something a little bit more permanent, like a 20-year loan on their books or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So you're going to have to refinance it twice. Well, not necessarily, because some banks will do the whole 20-year loan, and then they keep track of you actually doing the work to, to um, that they loaned you the money to do. So they don't have to refinance it. Other banks are going to do two loans. It just depends on who you're dealing with. So what else is uh, going on in the world? In my world? Well, just ha- having a blast with grandkids and kids and daughters-in-law. And My oldest grandson broke his leg. Um, both of the two bones in the bottom of his leg broke him right in half. Doing what? He goes to the gym with his buddy. He lives in Austin. And How uh, old is he? He's 14. Oh, okay. So he's not like yeah, a no, seven-year-old. No, 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 no. Fourteen, and his buddies after school. It, they live in a neighborhood in Austin called Hyde Park, which is similar to ter- Tech Terrace where I live. Mm. Older homes, and there's shops around a lot more than in Tech Terrace. But but the gym is two blocks away, and uh, he and his buddies walk there after school or whatever. And so one of his buddies is two years older than him, and probably 60 or 70 pounds bigger than him oh my goodness and after they worked out the buddy said hey let me show you my latest kickboxing move that i learned kicked him on the shin and broke his leg no he i I don't however he kicked him they both lost their balance and he landed on nate's leg uh (sighs) and nate's leg was pinned somehow busted that poor kid all night long, two different hospitals because the first one couldn't handle it, and then they had to ambulance him to the second one. Finally, the uh, orthopedic surgeon came in around 5 a.m. and said, I don't know why you guys are messing with this. He needs to go to surgery. So he got a rod in his leg from his knee to his ankle. Uh, <laughs> I broke my tibia and fibia. Those are the ones. Yeah, yeah. and playing uh, football in high school, it ended my career. 
And so I planted my foot, had ankle braces on because I had really bad ankles, and yeah. it literally like snapped it. And so uh, I'm laying on the ground, and my foot's laying the opposite direction oh that it no. should be. And so I, I kind of know that I didn't have to do the rods, but it was right below my growth plate. Mm. And this is the reason why I'm only 5'9 on a good day. Oh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Bologna>. <laughs> yeah, you might only be 5'9, but you pack 6'2 into that 5'9. <laughs> sure. You think? Yeah, I've known you long enough to know that. <laughs> yeah. Keeping up with you. I don't know. I pray for Jennifer every night. No, I'm kidding. I I yeah, everybody <laughs> needs to pray for Jennifer. She's my wife, but everybody needs to pray for her. She's, but we balance each other out pretty well. Yeah. 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 Cause she's the most reserved person I think yeah. I've ever, yep. but she, she, she can crack that whip on me pretty yeah. well too. Yeah, well she has right. to, yeah. you know what I'm that's saying? Right. Yeah. It's a good deal, but yep. there's a man, I think this is a pretty good stopping spot to be yeah. honest with you. So is there any, how can everybody get a hold of you? Cause I, here's one thing is I can't endorse anybody, but I can tell them that I trust you. Yeah. Right. Nice. And Thank so, you. Yeah. and uh, that so, you'll actually work hard for them. So how do people get in contact? with My you? cell phone is the best way. 806-773-0496. <laughs> That's an 806 number in Lubbock, Texas. But this is what I thought was interesting that I learned from you a little while ago. You're actually servicing loans all over the country. Yeah, I, I do loans anywhere. Mm-hmm. That's crazy because yeah. you had somebody that was like, you're doing a loan in Maine. Mm-hmm. Yep. I've <laughs> done, done them uh, all up in New England. A few of those were family members because that's where I grew up. But, but yeah, North Carolina, South Carolina, all over the place. California, that's a kind of a hard one to do. But yeah. And here's the thing. If you're a bank or a credit union, you are licensed in all 50 states to do mortgages. If you're an independent mortgage banker who's not working for a bank or a credit union, you have to get licensed in each separate state. So most independent mortgage bank uh, mortgage people will only be licensed in maybe their state and the a couple of shrine ones. Yeah. yeah. But because we're regulated by the federal government, we are get grandfathered in to be able to do mortgage loans in any state in the union. That's nuts. And so you you work for a pretty good university bank here. Yeah. I got to tell you, yeah. what. Texas Tech Federal Credit Union. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to Patrick Mahomes here a little bit. I know, uh, huh? Right. Yeah, That's good, good for him. Yeah, yeah, it is good for him. Winning another Super Bowl and MVP, yep. Yep. both regular season and Super Bowl MVP. I, I go. know. And yep. everybody He's such makes a quality guy. He is. That's the thing I yeah. like about him the most. Yep. Is the guy just loves the game. Mm. You could tell that. Yeah, but he does. It, it, yeah. He's amazing to watch, but he, he is a good West Texas boy here. And he certainly has turned a lot of Lubbockites from being Dallas fans to being Kansas City fans. I'm one of them because I can <laughs> tell you every single player on that Kansas City team. In fact, my wife gets annoyed with me. The guys at my office get annoyed with me <laughs> on how much I have a conversation about the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, so well, they're good. They're they're good, but it's a, just a good organization, or it yeah. seems to be from the surface. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's pretty and good. Kansas City's an awesome place to visit. I haven't been there yet. Oh, you should. It's go. on my bucket if list. If you like barbecue. Go to Kansas City. Really? Burnt ends is what their specialty is. That's coming down here in West Texas because barbecue in Texas is not bad either. No, it's not. You're right. But, but I love Texas. Yeah, I do too, man. <laughs> Tom, I appreciate you c- coming today, man. It's you good too. to see you. And, yeah, and thanks. thanks, man. I learned so much off of this episode oh, that man. I have not done yeah. or well, figured out. In I learn something every time I talk to you, but I have to really listen fast. I felt like I slowed it down, Ryan. Did I you slow did. it down a little bit? No, no, I didn't. Not at all. It's good to see you, Tom. Yeah, same here. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Pursuing Alpha podcast, hosted by Charles Brandon Snyder. Charles Brandon Snyder offers securities through LPL Financial. 
member FINRA and SIPC. Pursuing Alpha is a separate entity from LPL Financial. Pursuing Alpha and the logo are registered trademarks. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Any guests and their companies are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial, Alpha Capital Strategies, Alpha Capital, or the Pursuing Alpha podcast.